Hello, and welcome to the Hypnosis for Humans podcast. I'm your host, Bill Gladwell, and this show is dedicated to giving tips, techniques, and real-life advice to help you build your communication skills, expand your comfort zone, and make you a better human being. In this episode, I appeared on the Nerdy Wordy podcast with Billy and Rob last week. You can find the Nerdy Wordy podcast on YouTube at the link I put in the show notes. Since the Nerdy Wordy podcast is in video format, we recorded this episode using Zoom. The audio quality is not good due to the connection speed of one of the participants. I tweaked the audio as best I could. The episode takes a turn toward a philosophical debate that could have continued much longer, but I recognized that a participant was suffering from confirmation bias. The tendency for humans to interpret new evidence as confirmation of one's existing beliefs or theories. You can learn more about cognitive biases by reading my article titled How to Be an Intelligent Human. The link is in the show notes. If you have any questions or comments, click on the link in the episode notes or contact me through my website at hypnosisforhumans.com. On my website, you may also purchase my books, hypnosis audio programs, and select services. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone, to the Nerdy Wordy Podcast, where today we have an extra special episode in store for you. My name's Billy, and I'm going to be your main moderator and co-host, along with my friend. I'm Rob. And the reason why today's episode is going to be so awesome is because we got a special guest here for you. He is an expert in hypnosis, influence, and persuasion. And he's used those skills over the last 30 years to help hundreds and thousands of people be able to effectively communicate, be able to ethically influence, and ethically is the important word there, and also help people get more of what they want. You can think of how to win friends and influence people, but a more updated and more effective approach. And he's just an all-around great human being, and it's my pleasure to have on our podcast, Bill Gladwell. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. When we talked, and I haven't talked to Rob at all, I just have seen you on the podcast and uh, Billy, but we've talked back and forth on email. We talked about an AMA type of podcast, right? Yeah. I can do whatever you want me to do. So you ask questions or I'll talk forever, depending on what you want to do. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, I guess the first place to start would be, what is your definition of hypnosis? Because I'm sure a lot of our normal viewers probably won't be familiar with what hypnosis actually is. You've been to my website. I don't know, Rob, if you've been to the website, but I got the articles. And one of them is about hypnosis because there's a, I make a good argument that hypnosis isn't a real thing. But then I turn around and make an argument that it is. So it depends on how you look at it. Mm -hmm. Because the way that I view it is that hypnosis is just communication. It's effective communication. So if that's the case, then there's no hypnosis. It's just effective communication. That's all it is, right? Uh-huh. And that's what I think it is. But when it comes to somebody wants to stop smoking or they want to be better at meeting other people and build that confidence up, hypnosis is effective communication with a purpose. So mm -hmm. I could go into a room of a thousand people and do a class for a weekend on how to hypnotize people. Or I can go into the same room and teach the same stuff, but say, hey, I'm just teaching you effective communication. It's the way that your brain works and the way that it processes information and language. Mm -hmm. So you can go either way. So I'm okay if people don't believe in it. I'm okay if they do believe in it. And to give you an example, when I started back in the early 90s, I was working with a lot of doctors. But 
at that time, 80 to 90% of doctors didn't think it was a thing. And only about 10% would hire me to come in and work with their patients. Now that has switched over the last 30 years. And most doctors, um, I'd say 80% think that hypnosis is a tool that you could use. People just have a weird concept of what it is because of movies and TV. And you get the stage hypnosis people, which I did for a long time before I did my mentalism show. And the stage hypnosis is all a numbers game. I know that if I have 100 people in a room, 20 to 25 of those people are going to be the types of people that want to volunteer to be stupid on stage. And then when I bring them up, I know that anywhere from four to five of them are going to be really, really good at it. And some of them are going to be mediocre, another four or five. And then the rest of them, I just sit back down. So I ended up with about eight to 10 people on stage. So you just have to put on that show that, okay, now close your eyes and relax and your body's becoming limp and some people fall off the chairs, but it's a show. And I just got tired of doing it and I can't stand to watch one now. Yeah. Uh, So what hypnosis is during this podcast, if I use the word trance or hypnosis, I mean the same thing. They're interchangeable to me. So I'm I'm talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. So the three ingredients you need for hypnosis is you have to have a fixation of attention. That means that you can fixate on the sound of my voice. That's why if you watch the old movies, they have a watch going back and forth because they're watching and fixating on that. You can have somebody stare at a corner of a wall, or you could be fixated by someone that you find attractive. It doesn't have to be something artificial. And that's why you also get highway hypnosis is what they call it, because you're fixated on the lines in the road and you're driving down. That's one ingredient of hypnosis. So fixation. Mm-hmm. The other one is you have to distract the conscious mind. A lot of people will say, begin counting backwards in your mind from 99 by three. So it's 99, 96. Well, that's hard to do for most people. That's a distraction of their conscious mind. The fixation is on counting, but at the same time, it's also distracting the conscious mind because they're thinking about that. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that they need is to go inside. What I mean is, You don't want them looking around out here and describing things. You want them imagining things in their mind. Those that's the three ingredients of hypnosis. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. Does that answer your question? I think so, yeah. So hypnosis is real and hypnosis is not real. It depends on how you look at it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I go for the end result. If you come to me and you don't have confidence walking up to somebody you're attracted to, for example, and you want help with that and you want to learn to do it. Or if you come to me and you want to lose 40 pounds, my philosophy has been doesn't matter if it's real or not, because we got your end result. You got what you paid for. Billy, we should say how we met, right? For That's people true. that are watching. How do, how do we meet? Yeah, so, I'll, so the first place I saw you was at Hilton Head, where I watched one of your shows. And then I messaged you right before I started college, and we went back and forth a little bit about hypnosis and stuff like that. But at the time, I couldn't really afford uh, your training program and all that stuff. So then I started college. And then when I finished, I had refound you a couple months before I had finished. And then I started the podcast with Rob. And I followed you on our Instagram for the podcast, which you should go follow. And uh, then you followed me back. And I thanked you for the follow back. And then we just went back and forth from there. That was probably in May or June, right, of this year that we started. Yeah, somewhere around And we there. just, basically, you got a free education and hypnosis over, over the past yeah. several months. 
It was really nice of you. It was emailing back and <laughs> forth. But no, I like that because I think we talked about this. When I write it down and then I also can teach it, it's more mm-hmm. clear in my mind as well. So it's a nice thing for me yep. to do to solidify things. Exactly. It's a mentalism show that I, I did in Gatlinburg and Hilton Head Island and Sedona, Arizona. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. where we met in Hilton Head Island. That was 2014 or 15, somewhere, because I was there for two years until the hurricane hit. Mm-hmm. So it was around there. You guys can ask anything you want. You have Star Trek in your background, Rob. Yes, I do. I'm going to ask Rob a question, then I'm going to ask Billy to answer the same one. So mm-hmm. which one do you prefer, Star Wars or Star Trek? Uh, Star Trek. What about you, Billy? I still haven't seen the Star Trek, so I'm not a very... Oh, you good... haven't watched any of them. That's right. Yeah. So I've been I'm... trying to get him to do it for months, and he it's just hasn't... on my list. I've seen every, I, all the movies every episode more than once. I, I, Star, yeah. I, I like Star Wars, but man, Star Trek, uh-huh. I, I just like that whole universe. Totally <laughs> agree. Yeah, Rob, Rob is a big fan as well, so you guys could... Well, you probably would be if you ever watched them. Yeah. <laughs> I've been <laughs> yeah, told okay. that. My dad's side of the family is all like, you need to watch them, and then... You both have told me I need to watch them, and then I have some other people. It's I need to watch them. Now, Rob, I told him to start with the next generation. I mean, is that a good point to start with? Well, I told him that he should do like the original series movies, the first like six ones, just yeah, to kind of yeah. get a baseline. Oh, the movies. I, yeah. yeah, yeah, that would be good. The original series itself, though, is it's okay. I mean, yeah. it's like I mean, I can point out certain episodes for him to watch to kind of be like, okay, this character is this, and like this is what happens, and you know, can give it, give a feel for it. But I feel like you know, watching the movies kind of gives you that atmosphere that you will see more if you get to Next Generation and stuff. Before you watch that, watch the Trouble with Tribbles episode on the original series because that'll yep. come up later, and mm-hmm. you won't know what they're talking about if it'll come up in other franchises, other. Other world. Other popular culture, I think. Normally, I wouldn't talk about this on a podcast, but this is right in with your podcast. So, what do you? Th- I like Discovery. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you watched that? I've only watched a couple of episodes because um, I just didn't get uh, CBS All Access uh, to watch the yeah. rest. But I was like, it's okay. You know, I know that like it's taking place during the original series, and we get like the other versions of like how we see Spock and Kirk and everything else. So, um, yeah. I watched and- some of Picard. So I watched that. You like that too, yeah. Yeah. Now, they did, I don't know if you know Discovery, this is not really a, it's not a spoiler. On Discovery, they jump like 900 years into the future. Oh, really? So now, they can do whatever they want. It's a Mm -hmm. good way to be able to still have the Star Trek thing and then be able to do other things. Yeah, because it like stalls after like um, Star Trek Nemesis and Picard. It kind of like stalls within like the last half of like the 24th century. It doesn't like go beyond that. So like, yeah, that's that's why I liked about Picard, because it kind of goes beyond what happened after Nemesis and like to see what happens in the future and stuff. So, yep, me too. All right. Well, I didn't mean to get off on Star Trek. That's fine. I mean, Rob agrees with me. You really need to watch Star Trek. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will watch it. It is on my, my watch list. I just haven't had a chance to People like, are find logging it in. get it. People are logging in. To, oh, we're going to learn about hypnosis. And all we do is talk about Star Trek. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Rob, hit me. Um, so uh, I am not like Billy. I am a very skeptical person. Uh, just as my nature, and that's why I am uh, a physics major, and that's why I want to be a physicist when I grow up. But I've been a very skeptical person from a very early age, so I uh, 
I've always been skeptical about, about certain things that like, you know, I don't really know about. And when Billy and I first started talking uh, about you and about like hypnosis and everything, I was kind of like, I'm on the fence about it. Um, and he was like, well, do more research, you know, as like, I don't mind doing research. I actually enjoy it, you know, especially <laughs> a topic I don't really know about. And I kind of want to know more about it, you know? Yeah. Um, so one of my first questions I have, and I'm glad that you had discussed about, you know, you're, you know, saying that hypnosis is either real or not real. You know, there's like that dichotomy that you have. I have done a little bit of research into hypnosis. Now, of course, I don't believe in like the altered state theory of hypnosis. I think of it as more as the placebo in which you have a willing participant that is willing to be, you know, in this kind of state of mind that the person who is trying to hypnotize them places them in, basically, you know. Um, oh, what was that last sentence you said? That they get placed in by the hypnotizer, basically. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I have uh, this book. It's Hallucinations by Dr. Oliver Sacks. Uh, okay. He's a world-renowned neuroscientist. Uh, he was. He's now deceased. Um, and he actually has a comment about hypnosis in the book that, if you don't mind, I would like to kind of Oh, read. I don't care. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so he says that hypnotic suggestion indeed can be used to induce hallucinations. And he says this was shown experimentally by Brady and Levitt in a 1966 study in which they suggested that hypnotized subjects that they see, i.e. Uh, hallucinate, a moving visual stimulus, a rotating drum with vertical stripes. The subject's eyes, as they did this, show the same automatic tracking movements, optokinetic nystagmus, that's uh, a very hard word, um, that occur when one is actually looking at a, such a rotating drum, whereas no such movements occur, uh, they are impossible to feign if only merely imagine such a visual target. Basically, he's saying that, like, if someone who is being hypnotized closes their eyes or does anything, um, they will visualize in their brain without actually having any kind of visual stimulus in front of them. So it shows that these individuals who are being hypnotized uh, see and experience something that uh, otherwise is not there for them. So my question is kind of like, is that kind of in a similar way to how, you know, hypnotizing somebody to like help with like an issue or something that could kind of like give a self-belief factor when when they're hypnotized or in this state? Well, we know that people do that because we call them schizophrenic mm -hmm. because they can't distinguish the images, sounds, feelings in their mind from the ones that are real. Let's talk about hallucinations, though, first, since you brought that up. So hallucinations, we all have them. There's positive hallucinations and negative hallucinations. Positive hallucinations are what most people consider hallucinations. That's what you see, hear, or feel something that isn't really there. We all have those. Cell phones, for example, you have that phantom vibrate sometime and you reach down because you think it's there, but it's a hallucination. That's what I would consider a hallucination. You also have negative hallucinations. So negative hallucinations are things that are there but you can't see them or hear them or feel them. So this would be like if you open the refrigerator looking for something specific like the ketchup and you say, I can't find the ketchup and you close the door and then somebody walks up, it goes, it's right there in front of you. That's a negative hallucination. So hallucinations are a real thing. Most people don't label them hallucinations. You said something about altered states. 
I can't remember what you said. So there's two theories of how hypnosis works. Basically, it's altered state theory in which, you know, basically what you described as what you do for hypnosis. Okay. And not altered state theory, which is what I'm kind of going to or where you have a subject and you, you know, they're basically having a placebo effect in which they believe they are feeling or experiencing something in which it's not really there that the hypnotizer is presenting to them, basically. Okay. So let's talk about altered states. Let's give a definition of states first. Whenever you hear the word state, what does that mean to you? Like a different, you know, experience, different, different type of mental faculties are at work, basically, you know. When I use the word states, I mean emotional states. Sadness or joy or anger, all those are states. I use the term emotional states and states the same way. Those are my examples of states. First, I want to make sure we're on the same page. So what would be an example of a state for you? Well, I would say like if you're in a in a drug adult state, if you took some sort of drugs or something, um, a schizophrenic state would also be in which you like were paranoid and you believed in things that were not actually there and like were starting to see things or something like that. Those would be the kind of states that I would see. What about states that you would experience personally? Um, like for example, sleep paralysis, sleep paralysis, you could, it's an experience day in which your body does not wake up when your mind does. So you start to experience a different type of reality because you are thinking that you're still asleep and dreaming. And that's where you'll start to see, you know, shadow figures in your room or something else. And, you know, you think your mind thinks that you're getting visual stimuli, but actually you're still awake in your mind but asleep with your body so like it, it's not cor- correctly like aligning the two together basically okay so are you skipping over states like happiness that you have and maybe states of anxiety that's not what you think about when you think of states yeah like. because like it's for example state of anxiety like that is uh mental illness as well as depression you know i i do experience uh anxiety uh myself because i have obsessive compulsive disorder well, so yeah everybody so, like, well so we talked about that didn't we do you have it too billy yeah yeah me too we all share that depression anxiety those aren't really specifically mental illnesses they can be but you can also be a completely healthy person with no mental illness, but also feel anxiety at times and feel depressed at times. Those can still be states. During my live trainings, I have people list how many emotions that they experience throughout a week. And usually they come up with about anywhere from eight to 12. But we have close to 6,000 different words in the English language that we can describe emotions as. It's kind of sad that people only describe eight to 12 your emotions and the way that you act depend on the vocabulary that you have and what you can describe. So when I talk about states, I'm talking about emotional state. So an altered state then, by definition of that, would be any state that you're not in right now. So if Billy was behind you and you didn't know it and he yelled and you jumped because he scared you, you would go from whatever state you're in now to a different emotional state. So that different emotional state would be an altered state from the one you're in now, by definition. Mm-hmm. Are you with me on that? I didn't say anything weird on that, did I? Where, no, so no, far I following you, yeah. What happens during that process of changing from one state to another, you drop some of your defenses. 
the way that hypnosis works in a therapeutic setting, they agree to let you take them to a different emotional state. I start my book with, you can't make somebody do anything against their will, but you can get them to do something without their knowledge. If you're in a normal conversation and you're trying to persuade or influence somebody, all you have to do is change their emotional state and they become more suggestible. Doesn't mean that they're going to do exactly what you want them to do, but they are more open to what you're saying. Did I answer your question at all on that? I think you did, yeah. You ask about hallucinations. What happens in our mind isn't really what's happening in the real world. We make a map of it. We can see the same car accident and all three of us have different stories of what happened because we're processing it in our mind and not actually seeing or hearing or experiencing what's happening on the outside. It goes through all of our senses and we make meaning out of it. Every time you remember a memory, it gets less close to reality. Everything that our brain gives us is kind of a hallucination because we're making it up as we go along. It's how you observe it or what you're measuring. My definition of hallucination is probably different than most humans because of the profession I'm in. When people can't walk up to meet somebody that they're attracted to, sometimes they can tell me, I hear my mother's voice saying, don't talk to strangers, and I'm not able to go up and talk to them. I would consider those things hallucinations. Are we okay with that? I'm following you. So I do have another question, and it's not going to be about hypnosis. So I looked on your website, and it had said that you use uh, neuro-linguistic programming as yes. part of your show. That's correct, right? As part of the show, you were on the entertainment site? Yeah, I was on your website where you had all your blogs and stuff. And like one of the things that you said during how you train to do this is using neuro-linguistic yeah. Okay, well, wait, we got to back up here. So I am trained in neuro-linguistic programming and hypnosis. Okay. And when I work with clients, I use it. All right. Okay. When I'm on stage, I claim to use it. Mentalism is basically magic that happens in your mind. When you go to a magic show, you know that it's fake. Your job as a magician is to be good enough to help them suspend their belief about it being fake so they can enjoy the show. Mm -hmm. Nobody leaves going, I can't believe he saw that woman in half. She's going to die. Nobody believes that when they see somebody is sawed in half, right? Yeah. Because they know it's fake. In mentalism, the emphasis is a little bit different. When people come into a mentalism show, the mentalist his job is to make the people in there believe that he or she can really do what he claims to do. If you're looking at my entertainment page only, and I say I use hypnosis, neuro-linguistic programming, stuff like that for the show, that page is for marketing purposes of the show only. Is that what you were asking? Well, I was just wondering because I also looked at your uh, LinkedIn page and you also said you use neuro-linguistic programming there as well. So I just wanted to establish that you use neuro-linguistic programming yes. like in your private time when you do with your clients, not yeah, just yeah. like in the show or whatever. I just wanted to establish that. I do. And my sales training and my work with clients and all of that. Yes, I do. Okay. So my first question is I have a quote here from the ANLP website. Yep. And it says what NLP is not. And NLP is not psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, psychology, counseling, hypnotherapy, clinical therapy, or pseudoscience. 
But then I also have a quote here from the American Counseling Association that says, professional counselors help clients identify goals and potential solutions to problems which cause emotional turmoil, seek to improve communication and coping skills, uh, strengthen self-esteem, and promote behavior change and optimal mental health. So what you've basically been describing has been counseling, per se. So my question is, how is NLP not and also counseling. So how is it both at the same time? If I'm building a house, sometimes I'll need a hammer. So I'll take one out. Neurolinguistic programming, it's a set of tools that you can use for different things, for sales or therapy or whatever you want to. If you're a therapist, you can use it to help. If you're a salesperson, you can use it to help strengthen your influence and persuasion, but it doesn't do anything by itself. You good with that? Um, so uh, before I go on to my next question, I just want to say that I do uh, want to give all respect to you and you know everything that you you know do and say you know because you are a guest, you are a very good person that I am enjoying <laughs> hearing you speak. Because uh, I did uh, research into NLP and I've seen that uh, there is no scientific evidence supporting the claims by NLP advocates, and it's been discredited as uh, a pseudoscience. Um, so, like, there's like lack of evidence. Uh, research data does not support either the basic tenets of NLP or the application in counseling situations. There's no credible theoretical basis for NLP. Uh, researchers have failed to establish any evidence for its efficacy that is not anecdotal. Um, that's just like one source that I found. I have several sources that I found. Um, I just want to ask, like, you say you use NLP as like part of your, part of what you do. So I'm questioning how could, how, I'm trying to say this the best way possible. How could it be that like someone who uses NLP claims to help people and all that without having any evidence to support that. And it's, being, it's been shown to be a pseudoscience. Remember, I said NLP is a toolbox, so it has a lot of things that you can pull out and use. If somebody asked me, does NLP work? NLP is not a thing. It's a set of tools. Some of it works and some of it doesn't. Now, here's how I gauge if it works or not, is if it gets the result that I want. Does it work or does it not work? My whole thing is they're paying me not to do therapy or teach them sales training. Salespeople want to make more money. And people that are afraid of cockroaches, they don't want to be afraid of cockroaches anymore. That's what they pay me for. They pay me for the end result. I do whatever I need to do to make that happen. Um, so I'm glad that you kind of brought up like, you know, helping people, you know, is primarily what you do when you do any kind of session with anybody. Would that be correct? You'd like want to help to like help them with any issues that they have per se? Any issues that I can help them with. Yeah. It's always a helpful thing. As opposed to what though? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to like the, the point that I have, which is um, I have an article here from the Journal of Applied Research in Higher Education, which is like a meta-analysis. Do you know what a, a meta-analysis oh, yeah. is? Yeah. yeah. So basically, for those who don't know what a meta-analysis is, it's basically taking papers and basically analyzing the analysis uh, in the data and the evidence and the conclusions. It's an ana analysis of an analysis. 
So they're quoted here by saying that NLP is about adopting a humanistic, constructivist approach involving collaboration, focus on solutions, precision questioning, detachment from the problem, feedback, and finding out what works and what doesn't. They say that an individual meets with an NLP practitioner regarding a particular issue. Strategies are tried until ultimately the individual feels the solution has been found. The practitioner thus claims another success story. Within this, however, it is impossible to quantify precisely what has happened owing to the humanistic constructivist label. In this context, to describe NLP as social and or humanistic constructivism is nothing more than a tautology and creates a smokescreen around the conclusion that its core ideas are unsupported. So... Well, it seems, if you would have read that 30 minutes ago, we wouldn't have to talk about it. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> it just seems to me that, that says like, it better than what I was saying. Yes. Yeah. So like <laughs> anybody who, you know, practitions with NLP, you know, doesn't really have any quantifiable evidence to support the claims that they have brought in that say that their tools or anything that they use work. It's just more anecdotal and it's based on the constructivist view of how you know, is how those tools are being used. All of my measurements are based on, did they get what they wanted? Because that's what they're paying me for. I also have another quote here <laughs> from the same paper uh, that says that NLP certified practitioners make claims about its efficacy in the treatment of a whole range of quite serious disorders, such as addictions, eating disorders, anxiety problems, and pain management, to name a few. Yet the medical literature is devoid of any published evidence to substantiate these claims. And this meta-analysis went through about 44 different uh, peer-reviewed papers. And basically none of them substantiate much of the methodologies that are used in NLP to treat anything. So my basic question is, anybody, and maybe even including yourself, like who uses NLP wouldn't it be better to go to someone who is a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a social worker or someone, you know, qualified enough to know how to, you know, help people in a certain way that, you know, because I feel like practitioners of NLP basically have, you know, me methods to help people. People feel like they've been helped, but I don't feel like they have been helped. I feel like they think they've been helped rather than actually being helped by like a medical or psychological professional. I have an answer for that. But the last thing you said, I wanted to ask you a question about it. What would be the difference between somebody that was helped and somebody that think they've been helped? Well, the problem hasn't been solved for them. They just, it's a placebo effect again. Like they think that something has gone on and that they feel like they've cured, but Reality, I feel like, you know, a, a medical or psychological professional could actually cure the ailments or disorder or whatever is going on with them. And then they will actually be better instead of just thinking, you know, oh, I've been helped and now I'm fine. I want to dive a little bit deeper into that. Give me an example of one thing. Uh, let's say uh, alcoholism. So we would measure, I would assume that if they got their end result, they weren't touching alcohol and they didn't drink it anymore. Is that where we're going? Mm -hmm. So what is the difference between somebody that was cured of alcoholism? Let's use cured because you use that term cured of alcoholism or someone that thinks they were cured of alcoholism. What would be the difference? Well, the difference would be that someone who thinks they were cured 
went to somebody and, you know, because in this situation, I feel people in authority who are, who have some knowledge about a certain thing, they are able to use whatever techniques they use to help people. One uses substantiated medical, psychological, therapeutic ways to help people. And the other basically convinces them that they have been cured. It's a way of convincing, giving a suggestion to, it's like suggestibility is you're making people believe that they have been cured. Wherein like, again, like no psychological or medical evidence does support that they have been cured of alcoholism. They just think that they have because someone told them, hey, I help, I'll help you to cure it. Here's what you do. And then it's like, okay, great. Because it's the person who is in the authority space. He, is, he or she is in some position of authority that they can rely on instead of going to an actual professional who does know what they need to have help them. Instead of actually saying, here's how to help this is what you do, you know, instead of like, you know, getting prescriptions, getting therapy, you know, going through a 12-step program, stuff like that. Stuff that has been substantiated to work. If they're not drinking anymore, what's the difference? I just think that it's like, it's it's different, you know, it's, it's just a different approach to it because they've been convinced both ways, but one of them is a more professional aspect and one is, the end result is perfect. You know, yeah. you got because the anecdotal evidence shows, hey, this guy had alcoholism and he now doesn't. So it's, it works fine. The methods work and it's fine. But it's not substantiated as anything clinical. Clinical trials have been proven to show that, like, the, there's no psychological effects of how NLP goes from one to the other. I could convince my friend of the same thing. And, you know, because they rely on me, but it doesn't mean that they got the help that they needed, you know. I could tell them, here's what you could do, and then they follow it, but it's not professional help, you know, well, because they could relapse at some point because they don't have techniques to help them if they do relapse. Well, you know, at least relapse, a system yeah. in place when you're in like a medical or psychological system where you can go back and fall back on the people and can go back to therapy and go back to counseling and you can be able to figure out, you know, why did I relapse? Whereas, you know, if you just go in a circle and do the same techniques over and over and over again, it doesn't really help. But if you go back to the people and say, okay, well, if this didn't work, we could try this and we could try this. That's why I said multiple different things could work for alcoholism, like a 12 step program, like medication, like therapy, like counseling, like uh, support groups, you know, stuff like that. Let's change the theme a little bit. You guys are both physicists, right? Correct. And you went to school for four years? Mm -hmm. I don't know how long it is. What if I got on and watched all the lectures and read all the books and I got a hold of all the tests and I took them by myself, but I never got a degree in it? Would I be discredited if I could have a conversation with everybody just as well as anybody else? Yeah. I think professionally, you probably would not be taken as seriously, but I think you'd still be able to do the research just as good as anyone else. Uh, well, I mean, like, it, it, it takes a lot more than just, like, doing the tests and, like, you know, reading the, like, reading the books and, like, doing all the lectures and stuff. It, it takes, like, a particular type of training in order to do that, you know? Like, you have to do lab work, you have to do work. Oh, yeah, in, I'm, ass like, I'm assuming I did the lab work and everything. I just did well, it. Well, you'll start to know how to do peer review research. <clears throat> 
as well. And you know how to, you know, back up your claims and, you know, be able to make sure that, you know, your claims can be falsifiable or not, you know. I do know peer review research because I worked for Johnson Johnson for several years. Einstein came up with his in a patent office, right? Mm -hmm. And Isaac Newton <clears throat> came up with it when he had, I don't think he went past the age of 12 to school or something like that. He stopped school at 12. I thought I heard that. Let me, ask Billy, let, me ask, let me ask Billy, let me ask Billy, we all talked about our OCD. And when we, we all admitted that we had it, right? Mm -hmm. Would it matter if you went to a psychologist that specialized in OCD or if somebody had a sign on the corner and it said, I'll cure your OCD for five bucks. And you said, oh, I'll give it a try. I gave him five bucks. Would it matter to you if your OCD was gone either way? Me? Yeah, you personally, would it matter? <clears throat> if, you, if you had no more OCD, would it matter how it happened? Um, I think the net result of my life probably wouldn't matter. But I feel, unless I trusted the person, <laughs> like he looked of trustworthy. Course. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Um, he didn't look like creepy or anything, I guess, for lack of a better word. Then I, yeah. I don't think it would necessarily change anything. Because I got the same result that I wanted to. But Rob, you don't feel that way, though. No, I don't. We don't have to agree or disagree on this one. I'm always going for the end result. If somebody says, this is what I want, that's on my website, by the way. I help people get what they want. If that's what they want, we just have to find a vehicle to get them there. And I don't really care what the vehicle is. I'm not picky on the tool that we use as long as it gets them their end result. That doesn't matter if I'm talking to somebody about weight loss or a sales training, or meeting a significant other, or learning how to communicate. I just want to make sure that they have the end result. They get what they paid for. Um, kind of going back to like the discussion of like, you know, how qualifying, you know, if you're qualified to do a particular field or subject or anything like that, I do have a quote on that as well. Um, Knowledge is power, and anybody making claims about being able to help with serious disorders or improving learning efficiency uh, is making a claim of some, for some kind of power, which is kind of what I've been saying. There's a someone who is in the power of authority that, you know, someone can look up to. Um, however, with that power, there must be accountability through public scrutiny. And the lack of evidence for such claims means that the most rudimentary test of accountability cannot be addressed. In addition to this, if NLP is just a communication model, what special abilities does obtaining a certification in it bestow upon an individual, which allows them to meddle in education issues and serious medical conditions? None. If you're a therapist, you can use it in therapy. And if you're an educator, mm. you can use it in education. It mm. gives you a tool that you can use it with whatever you do. If you want to be a better speaker or a better therapist, a better doctor, mm. mom or dad, teacher. Because like, I can say with some experience that like I have helped friends, people, you know, in my life through things, but of course they obviously have to go to like a professional and they do go to professionals. Most of them, or at least all of them do go to professionals to get, you know, an end result help. You know, I tell them, you know, I'm not qualified to do anything. I could tell you what I think you should do, but like, I really think like professionals who are experienced in the field. Like I could tell, like I know a bunch of people who've had serious problems and I've dealt with those people and helped them out. But in the end result, like they've had to go to psychotherapists, they've had to go to, you know, counselors. And in the end, they kind of realize they have an alignment because those professionals have the knowledge. They have had the credible knowledge and power to be able to 
help them. You know, I have a power that I could use to help people, but it's not credible. And in the end, like, I feel like you may have helped them, but did they really get helped? You know, was it that they got help or did they think they got help? You know, because it's, again, a placebo effect, like, you know, just in the, in you know, psychologically. Because, like, the placebo effect, if you take a pill saying that it will cure your illness and your body turns out to feel better, that means that, you know, the pill may have worked. But, of course, it could have been just a placebo. And the same thing psychologically. Like, you could say, oh, I've helped this person now and I told them to do this. And they feel like they've been helped. It's like a placebo effect, you know, in psychologically. But I don't feel like it actually did help. I feel like you still need the medicine in order to cure your body in the same way that you actually need a professional help in order to cure whatever ailment or medical condition or mental issue you may have. So if we go with pain, for example, if somebody gets a painkiller and the other one gets placebo, pain goes away in their life. It doesn't mean anything different to them at all because their end result was getting the pain to go away. I also think you might be placing professionals on a higher pedestal than you should. I'm able to offer continuing education units to counselors, social workers, therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists. I also get hired privately by them to teach them how to conduct therapy and give them tips, walk them through things. And that's because of the material that I've studied on my own over the years. I'm not saying they're not good, but I'm saying they hire me to help them get better. A lot of things that they learn, like for example, hypnosis, social workers, counselors, psychiatrists, they get about a day of that in college, in their formal training. If they want to know any more about it, they have to seek it out on their own. Would it be like uh, for, a physics for a physics example, um, you have to like, calculate the motion of something, whether or not you do it by hand or use a computer to calculate it for you? You get the same answer, hopefully. But the, the tool of doing the math or the tool of using the computer doesn't necessarily matter as long as you got the answer in the end. Yeah, maybe. Everything that I do is focused on outcome. If I can't get the outcome, then I'm not worth what they paid for. The outcome is different for everybody. We can measure that. I can't measure what I teach them, but I can measure how they improve after I teach them. I was thinking maybe for like one last question. Um, so a while ago we talked about free will and you sent me an interesting video about oh, that's right. uh, about someone's opinion on free will. And I was wondering if we could touch upon that a little bit. We can touch upon it. Definitely. It's a philosophy question, right? I waffle back and forth at this time in my life. I'm going, there's no free will. The reason I lean that way is because of a few experiments they did. They'd hook people up to all the electrodes and everything so they could read their brain waves. They told the people, you can stand up anytime you want to. And they were measuring their thought patterns. And they found out that their unconscious mind came up with the thought that they were going to stand up. Because when you stand up, you have to raise your blood pressure so you don't pass out. So there's certain things that your body has to do before you stand up. And they found out that the unconscious mind started those processes Minutes before the person decided that they wanted to stand up, they were told the moment that you decide to stand up, let us know. And all those processes had started before they said, we want to stand up. From some of the experts that I listened to on memory and how the brain works, they say that your unconscious controls everything 
and it just feeds your conscious mind what it wants you to have. The decisions are already made before you think about them. I have no clue. <laughs> um, me either. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Rob? Uh, uh, I free. I think that like free will. You know, I haven't really gone too much philosophically into it, but I feel like you know, free will is just you know, it, it's an understanding of like you know, if there is no free will, then what is it? Is it just like you know, we are fixed to do whatever we are, and I just feel like you know, the universe isn't like that. You know, I think the universe is random and chaotic, and I think like um, any. Things that happen in the future of time that, you know, I, I, I will go to like the second law of thermodynamics where I say that, you know, the entropy will always like increase as time goes on because chaos will always, you know, want to be, that's the most equilibrium part of how we want to do is like they want to go from a, like a less stable state to a more stable state. And that's where chaos comes in from entropy and stuff. So I feel like in the same way in our lives, it's kind of like, you know, we can't predict what happens for us in the future. And we can't really say, you know, what we did was predetermined for us or not, because like time doesn't work that way for us yes. to, to study if things were to happen. It's just, you know, our experiences occur and, you know, we just follow through the nature of how the universe works and, you know, whatever events that we construct in our lives you know as we are a society of individuals who are aware of ourselves and of the universe i think it's uh an interesting question to to pose you know you know if are we really predetermined or are we someone who is always free to do whatever we want and i kind of side with you know freedom to do whatever we want because that's how nature like is working you know outside of our existence and i think it's the same thing for our existence Pick one city in the world that you like the most. Billy, what did you answer? I you just said, I just said Boston. <laughs> Boston. Now, did you think about other ones? Um, I thought about a few, but not too many. So how many cities do you think you know about total? Just estimate. <laughs> I stink at geography. Uh, probably like five, ten. <laughs> Only five. What about Tokyo? Were you thinking of that? Oh, that's true. I, was, I didn't at least consciously think of Tokyo. So all of these cities you're aware of that you didn't even think of, you name all these cities, and you might have waffled between two and then came up with Boston or whatever. You didn't really have the choice of Tokyo because that was never sent to your conscious mind. If you had free will, you would have all of these to choose from, but you didn't have all of them to choose from consciously because it didn't even come into your mind. Thanks for having me on. I yeah. appreciate it. Thank you. We're glad to have you. All right. Well, thank you guys. Uh, yeah. Thank, thank you, you for coming on. Thanks for listening to the Hypnosis for Humans podcast. Again, my name is Bill Gladwell, and I do want to hear from you with questions and comments. You can contact me through my website at hypnosisforhumans.com. Now get out there and be nice, my fellow humans. Mm-hmm.